Here's John. Hey, everybody. I'm John S. I'm an alcoholic. Um, man, this has been this has been a lot of fun already. And uh, I thank all of the people involved in getting this thing together, putting this on. Um, thank you, Billy, for your killer talk last night, your killer workshop today. Um, Catherine, where's Catherine? Her talk this morning was amazing. And I'll confess that I, I better deal the Al-Anon workshop for a nap this afternoon, for which I'll make amends at the end of the meeting. Um, but it's been a heck of a deal going on here, and uh, the energy has been great, and I really appreciate the enthusiasm. I'm a guy who needs a lot of enthusiasm to stay sober. I didn't come into Alcoholics and I, I mean, like everybody else who came in here, I came in here convinced that all the fun and joy in my life was done. Uh, and thankfully, that is not the case, because if it was the case, a lot of us wouldn't stay. There'd probably be some hardcore people that would stick around miserable for 20 or 30 years, <laughs> but I wouldn't be one of them. So um, you can kind of tell by this crazy jacket. Um, but uh, so let me just say, I told you I'm John and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is March 7th in 1989, which means that I just celebrated my 29th year. Uh, and if you're wondering, I got sober when I was six. Uh, I, uh, my home group is the Fifth Tradition Group, which uh, meets over in northeast Atlanta off of uh, at the Briarcliff United Methodist Church. And I believe my home group is the best group in the world for me. And I hope uh, everyone feels that way about their home group. And I hope everyone has a group that they call their home group. To me, a home group is, uh, and maybe I'll talk about this in the last part of my talk today, uh, the home group, the idea of one, was something that was lost on me early in recovery. I just bounced around, like Billy was talking about this, I, I just sort of grazed on AA. The way you go down a, uh, a buffet line, you know, and oh, this is kind of cool over here, you know, and as a matter of fact, I say, I was an officer in a group at one point, and I just sort of got bored with that group and just stopped going. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it said, John, you have an officer commitment, and I just heard, officer. Because <laughs> commitment is kind of a foreign concept to most of us when we get here. Um, but today my home group is a very, very important place. My home group meets really twice a week um, that we have regular AA meetings. But about four or five times a week we have uh, 12-step commitments external to the group, you know, at detoxes and at the, the Cab County Jail and at, uh, you know, treatment centers and halfway houses that we do. And that kind of effort, and when, when a bunch of people in one group are all involved in that, you know, and seeing each other regularly in those kind of efforts, man, that group is, there's a thing that happens in, that, in, the, in the members of that group. There's a unity that, that I never had when I wasn't doing that kind of stuff. So I just, I really love my home group. Um, and, uh, and I'm a gigantic screw-up, is the last thing that I want to tell you. Um, you know, Keith made that point about the GED. I did. I got the highest score in Hillsborough County, Florida on the GED, the year that I took it. And I bragged about that to a lot of people for a long time. <clears throat> they say this is an illness of perception. And uh, I, I have a lot of weird perceptions. I, um, I know a lot of my Al-Anon friends who heard me speak at the Pine Isle. I talked a lot about potential. I'm a guy with a lot of potential. And um, <clears throat> when Billy was talking, it's so funny, the parallels... That you, that you come across when you hear your fellow alcoholics telling their stories. I'm just like Billy. Billy was talking about being able to sit in a room if I was actually paying attention. Now, I have to admit, a lot of times in high school, by the time I got to high school, I was so hammered 
this wasn't true anymore. But it, throughout my entire educational career, you know, up until about the ninth or tenth grade, if I sat in a class and listened to something, I would make an A on the test of that material. You know, I just have a very good memory. You know, and it's a gift. You know, I, 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 I was at all the standardized testing that they did back in the day with the number two pencils and all. I was in the 99th percentile every year. And, but I made straight D's starting in about the third grade, which coincidentally was the time they started initiating this thing called homework. And from the third grade on, I had this attitude like, nah, I'm, I have to be here from 7.30 to 3.30. And after that, that's my time. You know, no one ever had to tell me what the definition of me time was. You know, I'll talk about me time perhaps a little more later, too. Um, anyhow. I'd like to say, so when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, most of us, and I was no exception, I blame my alcoholism on my childhood and on my family and on the circumstances of my life. Now, my childhood has gotten a heck of a lot better as I've stayed sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So if anyone is in that place where, you know, it's your childhood and your family of origin and all that kind of stuff, just have an open mind that it might be other, there might be something else going on there, too. Um, because I look back today, and the God's honest truth, as far as I can see it today, which might change, it's, truth for me is always subject to change, um, is I came from an amazing family. I had an, an amazing household that I grew up in with wealthy parents who just wanted the very best. From, the God's honest truth is I was born on third base and started running around the bases backwards. You know, and if I could have just put forth a tiny little bit of effort, had a little bit of willingness, had a little bit of open mindedness and just been willing to do a little bit of work, the road would have been paved with gold in front of me. Okay, but I'm a loud mouth, judgmental, self-centered, alcoholic jerk. And guys like me don't do those things. So but anyway, here's my the brief history of my life. Uh, You know, so I was born, like I said, into this. Awful situation. And, um, <clears throat> you know, and like a lot of alcoholics have reported, I never really fit anywhere. You know, I just never felt like I fit anywhere. Um, that's my perception, you know. I think a lot of people feel like they don't fit, but they just sort of get along with it, and eventually they find friends, and they make friends, and they get along, and they do stuff, whatever. And, you know, and I, I mean, I had a few friends, whatever, growing up, but I never really fit in... I felt like at home. I never fit at the church that I was raised in, which was not a fire and brimstone crazy church. I was raised Presbyterian, which is a pretty light religion. Any Presbyterians in the room? You know, it's pretty light. You know, it's not real heavy. I tell people I was raised Presbyterian, but I believe in God anyway. Um, uh, But I never felt like I fit in church. Um, I didn't fit at school. And I was good at sports and athletics. I was always a big guy. Um, but I didn't fit with the jocks, you know, uh, no jock would wear this. Uh, <laughs> I've always been kind of a weirdo, eccentric, kind of like artsy guy, you know, uh, more interested in playing the guitar and, you know, getting loaded uh, than just about anything else. And uh, <clears throat> so I kind of grew up with all of that. And then at the age of 13, and I come from, I want to... Uh, a lot of people talk about your first drink. I don't honestly remember my very first drink because I came from a big drinking family. You know, I came from, I'm one of uh, eight children, legitimate children. You know, there are others, supposedly, but, uh, but uh, big drinking family. 
all, I, I'm the sixth of those eight, so all my and there was like a five or six year gap between myself and the youngest of the previous five, you know. And so they were all teenagers when I was a kid, and you know, and um, teenagers and young adults, and and they were drinking, and my family drank, and my parents were professional people. My father was a, a doctor, and my mother was a nurse, and they would have cocktail parties regularly. Every adult that I ever knew growing up, I mean. When they were at my house, generally had a cocktail in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand, and they had they looked like they were having fun. And my mom would like say, you know, she would let us. This is the Chardonnay. She would try to teach us like finishing school at the dinner table. You know, this is a Chardonnay, and you know, and this is a rosé, you know, and this is a white wine, and it goes with chicken, and this is a red wine, and it goes with beef, and you know, try to put a little tiny spin of culture on what is basically a Central Florida white trash redneck, and. Uh, <clears throat> So, but I had wine and we had beer and, you know, I had a sip of my old man's beer, my big brother's beer during the Super Bowl party and stuff like that. You know, so I don't remember my first drink of alcohol. Um, the first time, though, what I really remember clearly is at the age of 13, I got drunk. I got the kind of drunk that I was going to get for the rest of my drinking career. Um, by the way, if you're wondering whether or not you're an alcoholic, if you can say the words drinking career and not blink an eye, pretty good chance. <laughs> Just throw that out there. The big book does have a lot more to say on the matter, and we'll talk about that. But I got drunk. I drank two quarts of Mickey's Mean Green Malt Liquor. When I was 13, I probably weighed about 120, 125. So by halfway through that first quart of Mickey's Mean Green Malt Liquor, I had arrived. And if you're an alcoholic, you know what I'm talking about. I suddenly was more okay than I had ever been. I was not aware up to that point how okay you, it was possible to become. You know, I, I, I don't think, truthfully, I was really aware of how unhappy I was prior to that. I think I was aware that I was kind of unhappy and that I thought differently and that things seemed funny to me that didn't seem funny to others. That's a big one for me. Um, alcoholics seem to have an atrocious sense of humor, and I love it. Mm, I got some good dirty jokes for later tonight if anybody's interested. Um, but... I drank that malt liquor, and I got a half a quart of malt liquor in me, and I was a totally 100% different person than I was when I started drinking it that night. Uh, I was not uncomfortable. I was a, I'm a guy who's always thought too much, you know, and acted too little, you know. And when you think too much and act too little, you get pent up inside, and you're not sure. And I'm also a guy who's obsessed with what everyone thinks of me, you know. I mean, I'm terrified getting up in front of y'all tonight to talk on some level, you know, because I just want you to like me. Okay, I'm a guy who is seeking approval in everything he does. And a whole bunch of my life has been spent in wondering what I got to do to get you to think about me the way I think you think you need to think about me. (laughs) Can you, is that, you're laughing so some of you understand what I'm talking about. So when you're like that, it's hard to socially interact. You know, uh, because I, I'm really worried about what you think of me. And suddenly I'm not worried one bit what anybody thinks. You know, and that is power. That is real power. And I got drunk that night. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole shenanigans, but I got drunk, got sick, threw up, um, got in trouble, and woke up the next day. Hung over and in trouble, which was going to be a regular occurrence from here on out. And the thought that came away with me, which is part of what makes me an alcoholic, 
is that was the best night of my life. And there's a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of, because we don't have a corner on the market on doing that. A lot of teenagers get crazy hammered, you know, and do crazy things, you know, and wake up the next day and say, I'm never doing that again, and don't. Okay, then you've got a class of person who does that regularly through their teenage years and young adult years and gets to a point where they say, I've had enough of this. You know, I want to get married. I want to go back to school. I want to have a, I like this little girl that I'm with and I want to settle down and, you know, or whatever. I want to start my own business. Um, guys like me have those thoughts. <clears throat> but don't have the ability to follow through with it, right? So, um, but anyway, that, that night... My takeaway from that night is, this is awesome. This is the most important thing that's ever happened to me, and I want it to continue to happen to me as much as I possibly can do. Um, so, 13-year-old kid, uh, I'm from a good, you know, good family. Uh, we had, you know, my mom uh, had dinner on the table. You had to be home at 6.30 every night for dinner without fail. And uh, so, whatever. I'm not drinking every single day at that point. But pretty much every weekend I was, starting at 13. And um, it was kind of cool. I lived in a neighborhood with um, a bunch of other potential alcoholics. And, uh, uh, and it was a pretty well-to-do neighborhood in South Tampa. And so all these other kids' parents had liquor cabinets. My parents had a liquor cabinet. And so, you know, it was back in the early days of drinking were, okay, you take an inch of scotch. You take an inch of gin. You take an inch of cream de cocoa. You take an inch of vermouth. You know, you take it, you just mix this all together, and you have this cloudy liquid in a jar, okay, uh, like a 16-ounce, 18-ounce jar, and you go out with a buddy or two to the woods, you know, and you just pass that jar around, and you do stuff, you say stuff like this. <laughs> Man, that's smooth. And you just go around, and you get hammered, and then you run around in the woods, and you, you know, doing stupid young guy things that I won't get into. <clears throat> nah, I don't know, you know, open <laughs> you go behave like idiots. But, um, and and so that's sort of how it went. And I, um, you know, I'm the kind of alcoholic. I'm an equal opportunity alcoholic. If you got some drugs, I'm good with that. You know, bring me your drugs. You know, bring me your hungry. Bring me your cuddled masses. You know, I will, <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity guy, so I did a lot of drugs. I'm not going to detail every bit of my drug use here, and I'm also not going to refer to drugs as outside issues, because as Billy so astutely pointed out today, outside issues are things like religion and politics and sectarian things that we don't need to have opinions on, Alcoholics Anonymous. And when we say, I'm not going to talk about those outside issues, kind of labeling drugs as outside issues, then I think there's a lot of confusion that gets generated. It's, that's, that's really not what that's about. Um, I am 100% for sure an alcoholic. And that is what I think in Alcoholics Anonymous we have in common. Is, and I, but I have to tell you this. I did not think I was an alcoholic when I got here. I was 19 years old when I got sober, almost 20 years old. And I thought I was a drug addict. And I came into a, as a lot of us do, through a rehab. And they told me, you're an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so you, when you go to meetings, you need to identify as an alcoholic or drug addict. And other people did all that. So I just kind of followed suit. You know what I'm saying? And if anybody ever said anything, whatever, I just got hugely angry, you know, about any opinions anybody might have had. Um, but it wasn't until I was, and I'll get to this later, about three years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, going to seven meetings a week, having no, no sponsor and no steps, and being suicidally depressed, that someone pulled me aside and, and said, dude, 
maybe we need to go through this big book together and you need to determine whether or not you have this illness of alcoholism because if you do have it, we've got a 100% guaranteed solution for it. You know. Now, part of that was being just young and crazy and defiant. Part of that was just the time or whatever. Billy was talking about the 80s and how things went, how things looked at that time. And it was crazy. And I didn't know, you know, uh, <clears throat> I thought I was a drug addict because it was cooler to be a drug addict when I was 19 than to be an alcoholic. Alcoholics were old. Okay? <laughs> right? Alcoholics were like in their 30s. You know? And so I thought it was cool to be a drug addict, you know, and, and I had, you know, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with, I got a picture of this, by the way, I'll show anybody who wants to see it, because I carry it around as a reminder on my phone. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with really long hair, a black heavy metal t-shirt, usually Metallica or Slayer, you know, maybe Anthrax, maybe Megadeth, but usually Metallica or Slayer, um, maybe Ozzy, um, torn up jeans, sneakers, and a terrible attitude, you know, and that's what I came in as. You know, and it took me a while to learn my truth. And this is one of the nifty, nifty things that happens at Alcoholics Anonymous. If you stick around and do our steps, you get 100% clear on the truth about yourself. You know, and when I know the truth about myself, then I know what to do. You know, so if anyone is in that place of questioning what their truth is, get a sponsor and go through and do our 12 steps from the big book. And you will learn your truth. You know, as my good friend Bob Darrell likes to say, the truth will set you free. It'll ruin your day first. <laughs> but it's worth having your day ruined if you really get set free. And that's what we're getting in this deal is freedom. Anyway, I digress. Um, so whatever, going up through, you know, up through junior high school, which in, in, in the county that I grew up in, junior high school ends in ninth grade. High school is 10th, 11th, and 12th. So um, I got expelled from the ritzy, you know, prep school that the doctors and lawyers kids all got to go to or wanted, were supposed to go to. I was expelled from that school. Another badge of honor. Um, went to the local high school. And by the time I was in the 10th grade, I was drinking or getting loaded in one form or another every single day, starting first thing in the morning. I would tell my parents, I'm on the debate team <laughs> or something equally ridiculous. And, uh, and they bought it. And uh, they would drop me off an hour early before school, and my degenerate friends and myself would go down to the little wooded area uh, off down the side, you know, off school grounds. We would drink and party and get high and then go to class and, you know, sometimes make it through the end of the day and sometimes not make it through the end of the day. And my steady D average that I'd had from basically um, making straight A's, I basically, up until about the 10th or 11th grade, I had straight A test average and zero homework. Like I said, I don't do homework. I do not take books home from school, in fact. I'm really clear about that. And uh, so I had basically straight A, 100%, basically test scores and then no homework. If there were in-class assignments, I may or may not have gotten to those. So I had basically Ds, you know, for every class because that's what averages out. A, a perfect test score and no other work gives you a D in most scenarios. Well, that started to go downhill because now I'm hammered in the class all, the, all day long. So I failed the 11th grade the first time I took it. And then I took it again, or I was made to take it again. I failed so many classes. My wife always laughs at this. I failed so many classes that I had to go to summer school every year. You know, you've got to go to summer school to make up things. But I failed so many classes, I had to go to summer school and summer night school. <laughs> so, and I, anyway, after my second junior year, I quit. I quit high school. And I quit one day, 
uh, over a bit of bravado. The dean caught me for the third time in a day, roaming through the halls, just like, <laughs> and said, what did I say was going to happen to you? You know, and I can't remember what he said it was going to be. I was going to get detention for the 19th time. And I said, screw you, I don't need your school. And I went down to the office and withdrew because I had a plan. And, um, <laughs> but that's the way I make life decisions as an alcoholic. Just one day, I'm just, you know what, I'm dropping out of high school. Um, I was living with my father at this time. My father, oh, my father. <laughs> my father is a self-made millionaire who came from nothing and went in the Marine Corps and got the, fought in Korea, got the GI Bill, went to college and medical school and made something from nothing. And he got me for a son. <laughs> my father is a really amazing, impressive man who's done amazing, impressive things in his life. He's not really good with people, but aside from that, he's great. <laughs> Anyhow, you can imagine my father's reaction when his long-haired, degenerate, and heavy metal scumbag son comes home and says he's just dropped out of high school and at, at 18 years of age in his second junior year. You know, uh, Semper Fi. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he kicked me out of the house, which is exactly what he should have done and what I needed. And that started actually a process. And so I ended up back with my untreated Al-Anon mother, God bless her. And uh, how many Al-Anons we have in the room? I love my Al-Anons. I love my Al-Anons. Billy and I, this is another parallel between Billy and I. This is how AA came to me. My mom has been with every alcoholic. Well, every guy she was ever with was an alcoholic, basically. And... Uh, she started going to Al-Anon when myself, I have two younger twin brothers. We're all living under her roof, and we we're all basically, um, well, I'm definitely an alcoholic. One of my other brothers is an alcoholic, and the third one is not. Although he spent five years in A trying to figure out if he was or wasn't. Turns out he's not. Um, but she started going to Al-Anon. She started, and I, I want to really emphasize started. She started to get well. And she got well enough to stop enabling her children to kill themselves. And we all ended up out of the house and in rehabs and things like that. And I want to just, I'll finish the story about my mom right now, but for the benefit of the Al-Anons, and I know some of you have heard me talk before, but um, if you're an Al-Anon, don't think that your drunk can get start to get well and you don't need to go to Al-Anon. Because my mom stopped going to Al-Anon once her three sons got sobered up. And today I'm not allowed to speak to her Unless I call my stepfather's phone, who's an active alcoholic, and get permission from him to talk to her. She's allowed herself to get into that kind of a scenario again. And so I haven't been able, he won't answer my calls. So I haven't been able to speak to my mom for five years. So just a you know, precautionary, cautionary tale. Um, uh, so anyway, what happens? I drop out of high school, and that begins a skid um, for the next, basically after that, I lived with my mom for six months in total sponge mode. I mean, six months while my mom is going to therapy, going to Al-Anon, and I am drinking around the clock, doing drugs around the clock, not working, sponging off of her, stealing out of her purse when the morning terror and madness were on me, as Bill said, you know, um, and just not caring. And, and just with this expectation of, of course somebody should take care of me. I'm amazing. Um, I have to tell you, Kathy and I, my wife Kathy and I, had 
one of the few delusions in common. And this might be why we got together. Because we both had this crazy alcoholic delusion that we would be walking down the street one day and a black limousine would pull up and somebody would get out and say, you would be perfect for this film. You know? You know? Or in this band that we want to put together. Get in, kid. We're going to go make you famous. Um, that's some crazy, poo, you know. But that's kind of how I lived. I really thought somehow just miraculously with no effort on my part that I was just going to be famous and weird and cool. Um, anyway, Jim Morrison was my idol. Um, why did I say that? Um, so my mom finally put me out and kind of helped me get set up on my own. And I, the last year of my drinking took place in Gainesville, Florida. It started... And it's just laughter. So we've got some Gainesville people here? Yeah, it's a good place to drink. Um, college town, you know, a lot of bars, a lot of craziness, a lot of drugs. Um, anyway, so I was in Gainesville, Florida, and I ended up there a year later living in a, you call it a house. It wasn't a home. I lived in this house, a three-bedroom, one-bath house, and me and my roommate, Steve, who, I was a high school dropout. Steve dropped out in seventh grade. He was one of those hardcore Central Florida rednecks that just liked to fight. I think Billy and Steve would have got along pretty good. Um, all he wanted to do was drink and fight, and that was it. And, and I'm not much of a fighter. I'm a big coward. Um, but Steve and I lived in this place. The rent was 450 bucks a month, okay, for this house with a fenced yard you know, on the outskirts of Gainesville. And we were like two, three months in arrears, and every utility had been turned off. And the house looked like uh, a, a tornado had literally hit it, you know. Um, I mean, the whole place, I mean, it hadn't been cleaned or swept or anything. And I don't know, I could not tell you how long. The place was absolutely full of empties and bottles and cans and little corners of baggies and drug paraphernalia and junk and pizza boxes and quarter pounder with cheese boxes. And, uh, and I was working in a pizza restaurant. He was working in a restaurant. All the last year, the only thing I ate was crappy restaurant food and booze. Those are the only ways calories came into my body. And uh, I was so bloated and disgusting. And I was laying on the floor in a pile of filth in this place. And one day, and wondering, what went wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And only an alcoholic can do that. Only an alcoholic can be just like blindsided by like, how did all of this just suddenly happen? You know, did I fall asleep? Um, and really, and the bottom was that when the water was turned off and the toilet stopped working, you know, your need to use the toilet doesn't go away, whether it's working or not. So we're still using the toilet. There's no water in the house. You can imagine the disgusting aroma that uh, our house, you know, reeked of. And our solution to this, and I want to just take this before I get sober. This is, the, this is the last straw right here, is at night I would steal into the neighbor's yard. They had a 50-foot garden hose that I would run over to our, our yard into our window, and then we'd fill that tank and flush it once a day, you know. That's just ridiculous, right? <laughs> But here's the most ridiculous part of that, is that my thinking about that, about me, was, you know, a lot of guys couldn't handle this. You're a genius. You are crafty and innovative to be able to figure this out. 
Anyway, my Al-Anon mother had been dropping hints for a while, you know, about rehab and stuff. And so I called her up and I took her up on putting me in rehab because I was still in the family insurance. So I came to Atlanta to go to a rehab. And this was back in the day when the rehab would keep you for four and a half months. So I was impatient for four and a half months. No cigarettes, uh, you know, exercise and therapy, 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 therapy. And, uh, and I was 19 years old, almost 20 years old, and they put me on the adolescent unit because my admitting doctor said, you're too immature to go on the adult unit. <laughs> and I was so out of it, I just said, okay, you know. So I'm just with all these crazy teenagers. And, um, but this is where the miracle started to happen for me, okay? It didn't happen all at once for my kid because I'm a slow learner. But they let AA members and NA members and other 12-step groups, you know, fellowships come in and tell their story and do meetings. And so these guys and gals from the outside would come in and they would tell their stories. And it is the story, it's the stories, right, that are the fundamental umpa identification that, that captures new members in Alcoholics Anonymous. It captures a fellow alcoholic. If there's another real alcoholic in the room, and I'm describing the illness of alcoholism that I suffer from, you know, if I'm armed with the facts about myself, just like it talks about in our big book, and you're a real alcoholic and you're new, you can't help but connect to that. And so that started happening to me. And over the course of about 30 days, I went from a, a, just an insane person with very little mental fortitude to a guy who 100% believed he was an alcoholic and 100% believed he needed to be an AA. And I fell in love with all of you guys. I mean, I fell in love with you flat out, and I've been in love with you forever, ever since that day. And I haven't had a drink since that day. I'm a one white chip guy. I know that's not everybody's story, and you, but, but the truth is, you don't ever have to, if you are here now, okay, whether it's your first white chip or your 50th white chip, you do not ever have to drink again. If you believe you're an alcoholic, we do have a solution that is 100% effective for anyone who's willing to do it. You don't have to like it, because no one likes it, okay? It, it says that in our big book. It says none of us liked it, you know, but it says, and it's kind of the, the, the some people call this the, uh, the anti-second step, you know, but we come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we've been living it. And that's what got me in here. You know, I knew there was nothing left for me. I knew that I was a 99th percentile guy. I used to lie on the floor in that crappy place and think, oh, I'm a 99th percentile guy in all those tests. I'm just waiting for 99th percentile to kick in, you know, it hasn't kicked in yet. <clears throat> Anyway, came into Alcoholics Anonymous, fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous, started going after I got out of the rehab and the halfway house and the three-quarter house and the 13-16th house. Um, and I did all of that, by the way, in the first year. Started going to meetings. And I went to seven, between seven and ten, seven and eleven, seven and twelve, somewhere per week. I went every single day plus. And usually on the weekends, we'd go to like the Triangle Club. You know, we'd go to the, you know, the Delano Club. You know, we'd go to the How Place. We'd take a little trip. Hey, let's go to the How Place, you know. So we'd go to the How Place, you know. Uh, so we'd catch a morning meeting, catch an afternoon meeting, you know. Then we'd go bowling. And then we'd go get to an evening. Then we'd catch the, go back down to the Triangle Club for the 11 p.m. or the 12 o'clock meeting to see if there'd be a fist fight or not. And uh, <laughs> there were sometimes. Some of y'all have probably seen that. Anyway. And um, here's what I want to tell you about that phase of my sobriety is it's completely possible to be, you know, clean and sober 
and going to 7 to 10 AA meetings a week and be in love with Alcoholics Anonymous and still be completely batshit crazy insane and, and to be a terrible AA member. I don't think I was a good AA member in those years. You know, I came to AA to meet women and drink coffee and smoke cigarettes, and that is all. And anybody start to talk about sponsorship or the steps or the big book, you know, hey, man, I wear this like a loose garment, bro. You know, I'm out of here. I'm going to go outside and smoke. You know, um, defiance is one of the fundamental characteristics of this alcoholic and a lot of alcoholics I know. Um, and I thought I was working a good program because, you know, I had been in intensive psychotherapy for my first two years of sobriety. In that treatment, in the halfway house, in the outpatient, uh, four and a half months of inpatient, I mean, I did a lot of psychotherapy. Okay, then in the outpatient program, and then the, uh, the when you're from a well-to-do family, you get to see some shrinks, you know. <laughs> Just take this thing and fix it, you know. So I've been seeing shrinks since I was nine years old, okay? I have been to shrinks where I was dishonest, and I have been to shrinks where I was 100% honest, okay? And three years in, I've been doing therapy, group therapy thing, and then the outpatient, ongoing uh, aftercare, and all of that, real regular. I had a, had a personal psychologist and a group therapy thing that I participated in. And, um, and I was, at three years sober, here's what my life looked like. Two and a half, three years, in that sort of time frame. I had gone from a high school dropout, Okay, got my GED. I had gone to Kennesaw uh, Community College. This was back in the early 90s, right? It was Kennesaw Community. It's not a big university like it is now. Some of my classes were in trailers, okay? Um, had made really good grades because when you're sober and you learn just a little bit how to study, you know, it's amazing what you can actually accomplish. I don't think I operated on any more than 10% of my potential, you know, uh, during those years, but I still made straight A's. Got transferred over to Emory University. Now I'm, now I'm a real college student. You know, now I have arrived. Okay, and in 1992, when I had three years sober, I had a 1992 model year car. I lived in a little cool apartment in a little cool part of, town, of Midtown. Um, I was an Emory College student. I had, I was working. I had money in my pocket. My parents, I was my parents' wet dream all of a sudden. I had short hair, and I had nice clothes, and I called regularly, and I visited regularly, and all this kind of stuff. So they were in love with me, so my relationships and my family were better. Every single area of my life was better at that point in time than it had ever been, and I was going to kill myself. Isn't that weird? And I almost drank one night, and, and we'll get into the whole story, but just by the grace of God, I did not drink that night. And I went back to... My home group, what was my home group at that time? And there was a man there that I hated because he always carried a big book under his arm. And he always talked about the steps. And he always particularly talked about amends. And he always particularly talked about amends with his father, you know, who died of cancer a year or two before. And he'd made amends with him. And they were good. And he was able to be with his father, whom he had beaten up in a drunken rage one time, and hold him, hold his hand while he died of cancer. You know, and the guy was just a, he was just a, he was a crazy alcoholic who had found this solution and was doing it. And it showed. And so I went up to that guy and I said, hey, man, I almost drank last night and I'm three years sober and I want to kill myself every single day. But every time I come to a meeting, I act like I'm okay. And he just laughed. <laughs> he says, man, you are awesome. And uh, he goes, and he, he, 
I said, I need a sponsor. I, I've never done any step work. I said, I've kind of half-assed some things, but I've never really done like what I know you're doing and what I hear these guys doing. So anyway, I fell in with this guy and with his sponsor, who's Dennis Sanfilippo, who's passed on to the great meeting in the sky now, and uh, Barbara Sanfilippo, now Barbara Hyatt's husband. And, uh, and they had a meeting in their basement over, where were y'all living? In Shambly then? Somewhere? And, uh, and there were 40 guys in the basement, and we would listen to the Joe and Charlie tapes, and we had our big books, and we had our 1930s dictionaries, and we would listen to the Joe and Charlie tapes, and we would read all the words out of the dictionary, and we would read the book, and then when that we'd stop the tape, and then we'd read up to that point, and we'd play the tape, and then we'd go on, and all this. And over a very short period of time, about six months, um, my life got turned around. And I want to really emphasize that, because it doesn't have to take forever to do this process. You know, I, I mean, I think this is a process that we're going to be doing. We are going to be doing it forever. I am still working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous today at 29 years sober. But my first pass through the steps took about six months. And we read the book. We did the steps. And not even six months, three or four months into that process, I was in a different place. You know, and I was no longer angry. And I did my first inventory. And I told you about my father. I hated my father. I hated my father. I blamed him for everything. You know, when I went through all that therapy that I talked about, the, the take-home message that I got out of therapy was this. This is why, and there's a line in the doctor's opinion that I absolutely love that jumped out at me in a big book study a few years ago. It says, <clears throat> there are certain types for whom the psychological approach does not work. I was like, holy shit. Maybe I'm one of those types. Because I've been doing this for all of my life and it hasn't worked. What, what I came out of all those years of therapy with was that I'm the product. I'm a victim already. Can you hear that? I am the product of a distant, unloving father and an overbearing, overloving mother. Okay? I'm 100% bought in on this idea. I want you to know when I'm new. Okay? That I got almost no love from my dad, or didn't, he didn't show love the way that I needed him to. And my mom showed too much and was smothering. And you know what I learned in AA? Is you better love me just right. Or I'm going to resent the shit out of you for it. You know? Isn't that funny? It's funny now. But that was, that, that was the truth of where I was at, man. I mean, I was the, I, that was just where I was. That was my perception, man. So, anyway, I did some inventory. Um, I got some clarity about some things. And even before I was done, and, and this is the kind of sponsorship that I had that I'm so grateful for. Even before I was done, I mean, I don't even think I was done with my fifth step yet. I think we had met once or twice and gotten through most of it, gotten through a big chunk here and a big chunk there, and we're going to meet a third time. And he's like, oh, by the way, from now on, every Sunday for the rest of your life, you're going to call your old man up and you're going to say hi. I hadn't talked to him in two or three years at this time. And you're going to tell him you love him and that you're doing good. And I was like, oh. You know, the very idea. But that Sunday I did. I called my old man. I told him I loved him. told him I was doing good. And we talked for about 37 seconds that Sunday. That's how much we could do. And today, 26 years later, we're up to about four minutes every Sunday. You know? But, and, I, and, he, and one of the things he said, you had to, you had to tell him you love him. Which is, <laughs> and I did. I told him I loved him. And he said, okay. Yeah. And then probably two, three years into it, 
I said, all right, Dad, well, I just called to tell you I love you. And he said, I love you too, son. And he's been saying it ever since then for 20-something years now. And now he says, when I, when I call him, he, well, he, it, sometimes he can't remember who I am, okay, to be fair. But he just says, God, I just love hearing from you, son. I'm just so glad that you're doing well, you know. So that's, that was good sponsorship. And thank God for it. Um, anyway, I started going through this process. I dove in, and I, I didn't want to kill myself anymore is what I really wanted to tell you. After about three or four months, I didn't want to kill myself anymore. In early sobriety, there was a period of time when I woke up. I don't know when it was. It was about three to six months time frame where I realized I didn't want to drink and that I hadn't wanted to drink for a period of time. Do you all remember having that experience? I couldn't tell you the day that it happened. But I came around here and I kind of started to do what you did very slowly and grudgingly. I'm a slow learner guy, you know, but I I didn't want to drink. And that same thing happened around three and a half years. Suddenly I was like, I can't remember the last time I thought about killing myself. Hmm. Because I was ready to say A doesn't work at that point, right? I've been going to seven to ten meetings a week for three years and I want to kill myself and drink. You know, one or the other or both. Um, And now I don't want to do that anymore. So anyway, I got really gung-ho for Alcoholics Anonymous at this point. I went through the phase that Billy was describing here. I like to call it the born-again Christian of the big book phase. Um, And I went to meetings, and I told people in those meetings if they said anything that I deemed to be not as good of a program as I was currently practicing. um, You know, I would raise my hand and say, you're killing people with your messed up message. And, uh, you know, I would just very judgmentally kind of, I don't know, you, we've all seen it, we've, a lot of us have done it, most of us, I think, have gone through a phase where you find, the, you find relief, you know, and you find a solution, and you want to go out and give it away, um, mixed with the ego of a guy who's right, you know, because let me tell you, I like being right about stuff, here lies John, he was right, <laughs> I like being right. And being right will kill us. You know, this is a disease of self-centeredness. It's a disease of ego. And anything that boosts my ego separates me from God and usually from you. You know, and if I'm separated from you, I'm in trouble. If I'm separated from God, I'm in trouble. Because ultimately, this whole deal is about getting a, a loser like me connected with God so that I have a power operating in my life. You know, I was really, I misunderstood so much in my early recovery. You know, um, step one, you know, there's basically four chapters plus the doctor's opinion in the big book before we're done with step one. You know, and then you work work steps one and two, I guess. And then you work steps three through 11 in about 25 pages. And then everything else after that is basically 12. You know, so they spend an inordinate amount of time in the big book. I'm trying to educate this idiot about what alcoholism is. You know, and here's the thing is, I have an unmanageable life. I stand here today before you at 29 years sober. I still have an unmanageable life. My life is completely and totally unmanageable by me. It cannot be managed by me. But my ego has me hardwired to try to manage it. You know, and the only tool that ever worked to make my unmanageable life manageable was alcohol. If I could party and drink, that was good. Life was okay. Life was manageable. But now I come in here and I give up that because it's killing me, and i got to get connected to this other thing. 
You know, and I have this really flawed character. That's what I learned, started to learn my first pass to the steps. I had this terribly flawed character. I am self-centered and dishonest and manipulative and judgmental and petty and full of self-pity and cowardly. That's the top four, top five. Um, but by nature, died in the wool. Still today, every one of those things is me, is John Shires. Still today. The only thing that makes my life work is a power greater than me that's operating in it. I need power. Lack of power is my dilemma, the big book says. You know, and so those steps started to get me dialed into that power. And the continuing practice of them keeps me dialed in enough because none of us can do this perfectly. So I started to, you know, to do our steps. I started to get more involved in service. I started to get involved in AA. Um, met uh, my wife, Kathy. Uh, uh, she walked into my home group one night. And um, there's a long story there that I'd love to tell. If we have a relationship meeting, I'll tell it. Um, but we, uh, we got engaged. We moved in together. Um, we, as soon as it was announced that we were moving in together, my sponsor, Dennis, at the time, and Barbara, his wife at the time, told us that we were having a meeting at their house the next Sunday. It was mandatory to come to it to remain basically in this sponsorship family. <laughs> and we didn't know what the hell they were going to tell us to do. We thought they were going to be disgusted with us for moving in, you know, without being married or something. You know, we thought maybe they were going to give us some, I don't know, they've been sober in Al-Anon for a really long time, so we thought maybe they'd gone church uh, real heavy and they were going to tell us that we were sinners or something. We, were, we didn't know what to think. It's the God's honest truth. And they sat us down and they said, We're going to teach you how to apply the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous to your family life. And we're like, we don't have a family life. Like, well, you're moving in together, so you might in a minute. Um, (laughs) Because if it can keep a society of millions of alcoholics unified in one body, then it can work for you guys. And we've been practicing, you know, sometimes better, sometimes worse. But we've been practicing the 12 traditions in our home ever since then and helping other couples to do it. You know, which has been an amazing thing to be able to do. Um, so anyway, I'm, what I'm saying is that every I started getting I'm a three legacies guy. OK, I li- I'm in a three legacies group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to be involved in all of these aspects of Alcoholics Anonymous. I need the meetings. The meetings alone will not keep me sober, but I do need the meetings. OK, I need the 12 steps. I need to practice them in my life. Just those by themselves without doing anything else, particularly without doing this 12 step. I also don't think will keep me sober. Because I also need you guys, you know. And then I need to continue to do service to get out of self. Because that's the thing I learned in the steps. Opens up the channel to the spirit, you know, that I need to be connected to. So I launched myself off in this vigorous course of action, as the book says at that point. And uh, Kathy and I got married. Amazing things. We were talking at lunch today um, about the fear that most every one of us has experienced when you consider the full implications of the third step and when you read the third step, you know, and you look at that third step prayer, I'm going to turn my will and life over to the care of God. And the third step prayer says to build with me and to do with me as you will. Man, that's heavy, 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 heavy. He could do anything. He could do anything. And my fantasy was he was going to send me to a third world country. Like, uh, here's my idea of what a guy looks like who has truly turned his will and life over to God, okay, which I don't understand, you know, what that is. He puts on a sackcloth. 
He goes to a third world country. He teaches like the natives in that country to dig irrigation ditches and about crop rotation. And he never has sex again, ever. Okay. And I'm here to report today very happily that none of that is true. Um, that I threw myself into helping my fellow alcoholics and to working these 12 steps in my life and these 12 traditions in my marriage. And that nothing but good stuff has happened since then. Um, we got married. Um, we started having kids right away. Uh, I, um, I, I graduated from Emory, finally, and through a really interesting cosmic sort of thing, I actually got accepted into a Ph.D. program at Yale University. So we moved up to Connecticut so that I could uh, follow up my educational opportunities, you know. Um, and I'm still only operating at 50% power, I think, at that point in terms of my willingness. I was telling somebody when I moved back down here that I got a Ph.D. And they said, where would you get your Ph.D.? And I said, Yale. And they said, where did you get your Ph.D.? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't resist. We spent three years in Connecticut. We got involved in some people up there in a home group up there. We got involved in starting a group up there that was a three legacies group, Valpolis Anonymous. Um, we're a little judgmental. Every time we've moved somewhere, we thought the A's sucked there. You know, it's not like they do it back in Atlanta, you know. Um, so we started a group there. And uh, about the time that group really got off and running, we moved to London, England. We spent four years in London, England. There he sucks there. <laughs> so we started a group in London, England and uh, three legacies group. And it's still rolling. And we spent four years there, had a lot of amazing experiences, um, had one child before we left the States, had a second child living in London, England, came back. Um, had a third child. I, I, may, I might tell a story about that if I have time. Uh, I've got to wind this up here for too long. And um, just a lot of amazing things have happened to us. Um, yeah, I'll tell the story about my daughter. So, let's see, this is what, 2004. Um, we have two boys. <clears throat> Both of them are out right now tonight trying to qualify for this deal, by the way. They're 18 and 20. And I love them dearly, but they're such idiots. And I nearly put one of them out of the house last night. It might happen tomorrow night when we get home. But we had two boys, little boys. They're about four and six. And we had our third was expected. And uh, we were so much wanting a little girl. And we got the happy news, you know, from the little ultrasound that we're having a little girl. Ah, life is perfect. Two boys and a girl. Everything's great. You know, and, um, and I'm working. I'm back here in the United States. I'm working at Emory, and life is good. And, you know, I'm sponsoring guys, and I'm doing the deal, and everything's great. And then the week that our daughter's supposed to be born, we find out that she has had a stroke in the womb and had a really bad brain injury. And it's like one of these emergency situations, C-section you know, specialists all over the place. She's, you know, we're, she's at the children's hospital as soon as they get her out, and they take her over there, and they're doing MRIs and scans, and they need to do surgery on her brain and, and all this. And, you know, those first few months, um, just, it's just one of those times in, in life where life just deals you a couple of bad cards. You know, it happens to everybody. Just because we're sober and we're doing the best that we can doesn't mean life doesn't continue to happen. It does continue to happen. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous... Uh, and it was actually Barbara. It was Barbara, Sam Filippo, Hyatt now, Sam Filippo at that time. I had a cell phone in my pocket, and we'd been running around. We made, made a couple of calls. You know, and this is in the early days of cell phones for us. 
And in fact, but we hadn't talked to anybody. Left a couple of voicemails. We get in the ER, and they're getting ready to, to do an emergency C-section on Kathy. And before we go in, the phone rings, and it's Barbara. And she says, what's going on? And I just started crying. I said, the baby's coming. There's a brain problem, blah, blah, blah. We're freaking out. I don't know. I can't tell you. We're going to surgery. Put the word out. And by the time Kathy was out of surgery, there were like 30 people at the hospital. And then it was like a period of a week or so where she was, my, my, Kathy was in the one hospital recovering. My baby girl was in the other hospital recovering. My two little boys are at home. And the AAs and Al-Anon showed up in our lives and they prepared food at our house and they fed the kids and they mowed the lawn and the Al-Anons brought so many casseroles you would not even believe I think in Al-Anon there's a book, a chapter in their book that casseroles can fix anything. <laughs> and I called my sponsor, of course, and my sponsor lives in Kansas, and so he's not immediately, you know, available. But I talked to him every day, you know, for a long time thereafter. And, and it was a period in there, I was talking with somebody today about this. There's places in your sobriety where you have to step up. And it's a continuing process for me. i got to keep stepping up. My level of spiritual involvement, my level of reliance upon my higher power, you know, my level of commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous, i got to keep stepping it up. I need to do more today than I used to do. It's a progressive problem. It's a progressive solution. Anyway, so I'm talking to my sponsor real regularly during that period of time. We get to about six months, and they, she had a brain surgery and everything. And so we're saying to the doctor, this neonatal brain care specialist guy, what how is she going to be affected by all this? I mean, what is she, she, is she going to be able to talk? Is she going to be able to walk? Is she going to be able to speak? Is she going to be able, what is she going to be able to do or not do based on where her injury is? And he said, the brain really doesn't work like that. He goes, she might be totally fine. She might be severely impaired in all those areas. I would love to be able to tell you the truth, but I don't know what's going to happen to your daughter. I think she's going to live, and she's going to be okay physically, but I cannot tell you how bad... Her impairments might be. Okay, that's at about, she's about six months old when we get that report. That might be the worst thing you could tell an alcoholic. You know, so when will we know? When she gets to be about 12 or 14, by then you'll know. So you've got to sit on that for 12 or 14 years. You know? You've got to step up to another level of faith at that point. You know? And so, so we did step up to another level of faith. <clears throat> And I want to tell you the happy ending to that story. My daughter today, is, she's, 14, she's 14. She's 14 this June. So she is, she is mentally handicapped. But she is, hands down, the best kid we got. Okay? <laughs> and she's mentally handicapped. So I just want, it's a good, it's a humility reminder for me about where alcoholics stand on the scale of things. It's like there's a comedian I like. There's a comedian like who says, my wife and I have a beautiful child and these two other kids. <laughs> and I can totally relate to that. So a couple of things started to happen though after this. I want to tell, finish the story. So um, about six months after my daughter is born and we go through all this whole process, um, uh, there's a guy, um, a friend of mine, he comes up to me, and 
This is, this is my, my friend M. Some of y'all know M. Some of y'all knew M. He's passed away now. He, he died sober. Um, he comes up to me. He's about, he's about six months sober. This is about six months after my daughter is born. And um, he says to me, John, I just wanted to tell you something. It's been on my heart to tell you this. And I said, okay, yeah, man, tell me what's up. He goes, I want to tell you this because of your little girl that I believe in God. This is, i got to back up just for a second to tell you about M, if you didn't know him. M was an insane person. <laughs> M was a old-school, beatnik, hippie, like, with a beret, man. I mean, and he fought anything and everything having to do with God. And he hated that the word God was capitalized in the big book. Why has it got to be capital G, man, if it's not the Christian God? That's what it is, man, and you're just BSing me, you know. And he had that kind of attitude, like a lot of us have had, like a lot of us have had. And his name was lowercase m. Like he was not, capitalization was a big deal to this guy, okay? So anyway, m's an insane person. And he'd been coming around this deal for a very long time and not been able to get sobriety, you know? He was a terrible alcoholic and junkie. Had been coming around here for a long time and never been able to get it. You know, and unbeknownst to me, about the time of my daughter being born, a few days afterwards, Em had a conversation with Dennis about God. And Dennis was saying, Em, I don't care what you believe. And Dennis was kind of in your face sponsor guy. I don't care, and there were, there were curse words that I'm not going to repeat from the podium. But he said, I don't care what you believe. You're going to get on your knees and pray for somebody besides yourself. And I just don't care. And, he, and this, is, this, is, this is so great. And it says to him, there's not one person in the world deserving of my prayers. <laughs> yes! And he says, and then I heard about your daughter. And I thought, there's one person in the world who can't have done anything wrong yet. You know, this little baby girl in the hospital with a brain injury. And I know her folks, and they're, they're actually good people. John and Kathy, we were friendly with them. And he said, so he told me, so he goes, so that's, who, that's what got me praying. So every night, from that night to this night, I get on my knees and I say, God, please look after Mackenzie. And then I started adding other things in there, like help me stay clean and sober and help me to be a good AA member. And help me. He goes, but because you're a little girl, I started a program of prayerful action and, and started working the steps. And, um, and, and, he, and it, whenever I would see him from there on, he would say, hey, man, I'm still praying for McKenzie. You know? And he ended up staying sober. He died with about, what, 13, 14 years sober? And um, he, he died last year, this past year. And, uh, and stayed clean and sober. And, uh, and it just blew my mind. And I want to say something for clarity's sake. I don't believe that God gave my little girl a stroke to help him. Okay, But what I absolutely 100% believe is that if I'm willing to be all in on this deal, that even the worst possible things can benefit somebody. And that's a different way of looking at the universe than what I came in here with. you know. And about two years after my little girl was born, I'm talking to my sponsor, Jerry, one day. He lives in Manhattan, Kansas. And he says, blah, 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 something, something about, you know, when I had cancer. And I said, whoa, ho, ho, what? What do, you, what do you mean when you had cancer? When did you have cancer? I'm pretty close with my sponsor. And uh, he said, well, you know, about two years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, stage four liver cancer. And 
Um, you know, it's bread, and they just told me to make your peace with your maker. And uh, But my kids weren't having it. They drug me down to MD Anderson and got all experimental and did surgery on me and all this. And, and they, you know, managed to save my life. And it was a long, grueling process, but I'm here I am. You know, two years, two years uh, free, you know, cancer-free. And I started doing the math as he was explaining this to me. It was the same week that Mackenzie was born. And I called him up, wrecked. It's my little girl. He's in the hospital. I don't know what's going to happen. He's just been diagnosed with fatal, untreatable liver cancer. Took every call. Took every call through chemo, through radiation, through surgery, and never, ever even said that he was going through that stuff. And because we live in different states, I wouldn't know otherwise. I said, Jerry, how come you didn't say anything? You know. He says, because you would have stopped calling me. And I needed you to call me. I needed to get out of myself and my BS that I was in and help you with your situation. And God helped me with my situation. And my sponsor helped me with my situation. And the people here helped me with my situation. And I needed to be able to help you. Isn't that amazing? And for two years, I knew none of that. So another lesson in all this is you can be oblivious to miracles that are going on in your life. (laughs) And it doesn't make them any less real. So anyway, I've been given a pretty amazing life at Alcoholics Anonymous. My life today looks like this. I'm married. I've got two teenage boys who are really trying hard to qualify for this program. And that sometimes causes some strife around our household. I've got a 13-year-old special needs child who's the light of my life. I've been married for 22 years to an amazing woman that I met in Alcoholics Anonymous, who's a great AA member. Um, I have a job doing something that I actually really like to do. I am a molecular biologist at Emory University, and I work in a laboratory down there doing molecular biologist stuff. And (laughs) it's an academic post, so, you know, you don't punch a clock or anything, which means a lot of days, if I feel like it, I can come home and take a nap. I sponsor about 15 guys. That's not true. I sponsor half of that number. Um, I am very involved in my home group. I am currently the speaker chairperson, which I will rotate out of that position at the end of this month. And my wife actually is rotating into that position. And I'm looking for whatever my next service job is going to do. But I'm going to get one. Um, I I have the greatest home group in the world. By the way, my home group is celebrating its ninth anniversary next year. And we have a huge eating meeting starting 5 p.m. Uh, next Saturday. Did I say it? What did I say? Next year. <laughs> Getting late. Um, so please come out for that. Uh, we have Sia F. from Los Angeles, California, coming out to speak. And if you've never heard her, she's a really unbelievable alcoholic. I'm very sober. Um, I love my home group, and I'm very active in my home group. I sponsor a lot of guys. Um, we do a lot of AA stuff. We do conferences, and we do, you know, Every year we go to Vegas, about 20 of us in my home group. We fly to Las Vegas together, 20 of us, and we all stay in the same hotel at this big AA conference, and we all gamble and eat ridiculous food for four days and go see Vegas shows and do this big AA conference, and it's unbelievable. Um, I'm really busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm not so busy that I don't get to play the guitar every day, take a bath every day. I'm a bath guy. Okay, deal with it. Um, <laughs> Play my guitar every day, you know, and get to talk to a whole bunch of alcoholics every day. 
you know, I'm all in on this deal. And I want to make, because it sounds scary to be all in on this deal. But I'm all in on this deal, and it's the biggest thing in my life, and I still have a pretty amazing life. This is what I was saying about me time. You know, alcoholics, I'm, I'm always worried that there's going to be too many AA commitments that's going to cut into my me time. You know, I'm not going to have me time. You know that 24 hours a day, 365 days a year is me time for an alcoholic? It has been for this one. I still have plenty of time to do the things I want to do. Um, I think that's I've said all I need to say. So thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you.